We are going to continue our study through the book of Jeremiah. What is that? Pen? I, I'll take it. Trying to steal my pen, Stephen? No. <laughs> if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Stephen, who brought up my pen, will bring one right to see if you can follow through with us. Jeremiah chapter 6 tonight. I, I have chapter 6 and 7. We'll keep an eye on the time as we go through, but uh, let's have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, thank you for this night tonight, Lord, for uh, just Kenny being here and just sharing worship with us. And uh, Lord, it's just a, a joy to know, as Kenny brought up, you inhabit the praises of your people. Lord, we praise you for that. We praise you for this time tonight. We pray, Lord, that we would gain not only information, but application in our lives as we look to your word. Bless our time together, we pray. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was a late Britical, uh, Britical, British political, that's British and political, you're Britical. Anna and Bevan that once said, we know what happens to people who stay in the middle of the street. They get run over. Jeremiah wasn't a middle of the street kind of guy. You always knew where he stood. And last time together, we looked at why Jeremiah spoke so boldly. Jeremiah was warning the people of the impending destruction that would come to Jerusalem because the people had forsaken God. They turned after the pagan idols and, and after heathenism. And, and, and the problem was that the people that Jeremiah was warning were people that loved their sin. They didn't want to turn from it. They wanted to continue in it. They didn't want to change. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 5.31 said, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and the people love to have it so. The prophets were going, Oh, judgment isn't going to come. Peace, peace. Amen. It's going to be great. And, and, and the people are going, Yeah, that's what we like to hear. You know, things are going to keep going the way they always have. Same thing we hear today. We say, oh, the Lord is coming back. The judgment is coming. You need to repent. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, you Christians are all alike, doom and gloom, and, and all things are going to keep going like they always have. No, there's going to come a time when the Lord is going to come back. He's going to roll up this world like a scroll. It will be over. And I, for one, believe it's very, very soon. And so we, like Jeremiah, need to be those sounding the alarm. Jeremiah knew judgment was coming. And chapter 6, Jeremiah begins by sounding the alarm, letting people know, get ready, it's about to happen. In fact, chapter 6 is often called a chapter of alarms. You know, it's like the tornado horns are going off, you know, going and going and going. Look at verse 1 here. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa and set up a signal fire in Beth. Hasarim, for this disaster appears out of the north and great destruction. At the time of, of Solomon's son Rehoboam and the ten northern Hebrew tribes followed after idolatry of Jeroboam, they became the northern kingdom of Israel. The two southernmost tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stayed faithful to the Lord and they became the kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah was actually a Benjamite from Anathai and here he's concerned about the welfare of the people who sought refuge in Jerusalem. And he says, blow the trumpet in, in Tekoa. Now Tekoa and the, and the house of Asherim, they were the city south of Jerusalem. And, and their mention shows the extent of how big this invasion is going to be. Jeremiah says that disaster appears out of the north and great destruction is coming. The, the north was the invading Babylonian army, the, the superpower of that day. In fact, 
Uh, by late May, early June, 605 B.C., Babylon and, and General Nebuchadnezzar had taken control of the, the eastern rim of the Fertile Crescent. And, and the Fertile Crescent is that, that crescent-shaped region where really the agriculture thrives due to the surrounding Nile and Euphrates and the, and the Tigris rivers. While the Egyptian troops under the, the command of Pharaoh Necho had, had marched to the border of Turkey and Syria to hold off the westward advance of the Babylonians. And so the, the uh, Egyptians camped at the city of Carchemish, and it was there that this decisive battle took place. In a surprise attack, the Babylonians routed the Egyptians. Pharaoh and Necho tucked tail and retreated back across the Nile, leaving the other nations in fear because now nobody is going to be stopping these Babylonians. And so the, the, the Babylonians are pouring down from the north, toppling kingdom after kingdom. And, and it really just took a few months before Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land of God's people, Judah, and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem itself. It would be the first of three invasions. So Jeremiah here, he's sounding the alarm. This is going to happen. God's judgment is set. Jerusalem will fall. The Benjamites had taken refuge in the city, trusting in its walls, thinking they're safe. And Jeremiah is saying, hey, you're not safe. Babylon will overrun Jerusalem and as far as Tekoa and Bethesarim, that the enemy will sweep over the land. And, and really the prophet Jeremiah was faithful to, to sound the alarm, but as we'll see, nobody was listening. The judgment is coming. Someone once said, the road to ruin is always kept in good repair. Well, look at verse 2. He says, I've likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. So Jerusalem is described as this beautiful woman that's going to be just savagely attacked. Verse 3 the shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. In other words, Jerusalem will be wiped out to the point that shepherds will graze their flocks where the city once stood. Verse 4. Prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us for the day goes away. For the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. In other words, time's running out. Sun's getting ready to set on Jerusalem. The Babylonians are plotting their evasions, licking their chops. They're ready to go. Verse 6. For thus is the Lord of hosts said, Cut down trees and build a mound against Jerusalem. This is a city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. Now notice who's saying this. Notice who's given permission for Jerusalem to come under siege. God, the Lord of hosts, it says, God is using the Babylon, the Babylonians to come against his own people. They're his instruments of his judgment. Why? We'll look at verse 7. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. Violence and plundering are heard in her. Before me continue their grief and wounds. I mean, here, here God, he's seeing how, how these people are just a fountain of wickedness. They, they spewed rebellion. Jerusalem was kind of like Old Faithful, you know, the guys at Yellowstone Park that, that you know, erupts every 63 minutes on time, every time. It's one of nature's most predictable phenomena. But see, sadly, what, what Jeremiah is saying is God, God is saying these people are just as predictable. Just a steady stream of evil, one right after another, and it's causing God great grief. And so, verse 8, God says, this is your last warning. Look at verse 8. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you, lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel, as a grape gatherer puts your hand back into the branches. And he says, uh, um, Verse 10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. 
And so the, the word of the Lord is going forth, but they don't care. They're not listening to it. You know, Jeremiah 4, 4 tells us that, that, that said the Lord, that, that the hearts of his people were uncircumcised. Here he says that their, their ear is uncircumcised as well. See, before the people entered the land of promise after being released from Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, wilderness for 40 years, an entire generation grew up that had not been circumcised. So the Lord told Joshua to stop it at Gilgal before they went into the land and circumcise the people again. And before they could experience the blessings of the promised land, they had to deal with their flesh first. Now maybe you and I are not experiencing the land of blessing or the fruitfulness God has for us because we failed to stop at Gilgal and allow the Lord to deal with our flesh, the parts of our lives that prevent a real relationship with Him. See, if the Word of God is no longer, if it no longer interests us because flesh has begun to cover our heart, how our hearts need to be circumcised again. If we're no longer longing to hear the Word of God taught, our ears need to be circumcised. Whatever it takes to get back to that point of, of, of receiving from the Lord and walking with the Lord. Here in verse 10, it says the Word of the Lord became a reproach to them. They, they no longer delighted in it. How sad. They didn't want to hear what the Lord God had to say. They'd rather bury their heads in the sand and, and imagine a false security. And, and I think this is our problem today as well. The word of the Lord has is, is become a reproach. You know, politicians, you know, they, they take that oath of office, they put their hand on the Bible, they, they, they quote it, but it's really just to serve their own interests. But obey it? No, they don't. It's a reproach. They don't, they don't need it. They no longer delight in it. You know, we're told in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight... His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in the law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Delighting in the word of God. I think it's a great indication where you're at with your walk with the Lord when you look at your attitude towards God's word. Are you delighting in the word of the Lord? Is it exciting to you? Listen, if the word of the Lord starts becoming boring to you, the warning lights ought to be going off. The alarm should be going off. You know, the, the word of God is not boring. It's never boring. It's not some dead document that, that, that could be boring. It's alive. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. See, the real problem for the Jews here is when it came to the word of God is that their hearts become hardened. So the Lord says, look at verse 11, Therefore... I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of the young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the age with him who is full of days, and their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. So the coming judgment is going to affect families. Kids will be taken from their parents. Wives will be separated from their husbands. Land and homes will be lost. Then the Lord says, why this will happen, verse 13. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They've also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. To realize when, 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 when this happened, there are no innocent casualties of God's judgment. Everyone was guilty. Everyone has sinned. God's word says that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here God's complaint is with the priests, the clergy of the day. They healed the hurt of God's people slightly, it says. 
In other words, their treatment was, was superficial. They suffered, the people suffered from, from the seriousness and sickness of sin, and they, yet the priests were treating it like, you know, with a placebo. I mean, imagine a doctor, you know, sticking a band-aid on a cancerous tumor and prescribing a few aspirin and promising them that, that everything's gonna be okay. That's what the people were, the, the priests were doing with God's people. They were telling them, oh, like I said, don't worry about it, everything's gonna be okay. They were telling them what they wanted to hear. They were saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And I'm afraid this wasn't the last time the clergy have been guilty of such a crime. I think we're seeing it today like never before. Pastors teaching this easy beliefism, you know, a cheap grace. They give the, the folks the impression that they can shed a tear and ask for salvation without showing any real repentance. No desire to turn from their sin and live under the authority of Jesus. Dealing with sin is really no longer the issue. It's been replaced with, well, we need to look about their self-esteem or we need to think positive thoughts. It's like putting a band-aid on a tumor. It's been said of today's gospel, if it were a medicine, it would be too weak to heal. And if it were a poison, it would be too weak to harm. I mean, we, we, we've healed the hurt slightly rather than doing the radical surgery it needs. I mean, think of it this way. You don't, you don't cut out man's sin, sin nature, you know, endoscopically. You know, it requires evasive surgery. And it still takes Jesus doing that, that, that open heart surgery. And here Jeremiah again is showing the hardness of the people's hearts, how not ashamed they were of their lifestyles. Look at verse 15. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. I mean, think about the state of a person's life if nothing makes them blush. If they're not ashamed of any evil thing that they do. It's been said that a society that rejects a framework for values will do anything. And certainly we have forgotten how to blush in our society. I mean, things that used to make us blush, you know, are common things on TV today. So the Lord says in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see. And ask for the old past where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Now this is one of those verses that when you come across in, in, in Jeremiah, as if the clouds separate, you know, and all of a sudden the sun starts shining through. Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old past where the good way is and walk in it. Then you'll find rest for your souls. Oh, here's the, here's the, the, the cure. Here's, here's what you need to do. It's a picture, really, of coming to a fork in the road. A place where a choice needs to be made. Do I stay committed to, to the old ways which the Lord says is, is a good way, where I, where I can find rest in my soul? Or do I take that path that leads to destruction, which Jesus said, many there be that follow? You know, the old way isn't po- a popular way. It's a way that's being abandoned daily by people who have decided that new is better. They're leaving the new and, and you know, rather they're leaving the, the true and living God and they're serving other gods. Materialism, fame, you know, de- degrees, money, status, even within the church. Christians are, have abandoned the fellowship of the saints coming to church. The Bible no longer is their guide for living. And I think of the, the old songs of worship that talk about how great our God is and now we're replaced with songs all, all about me. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book study, uh, you know, was the old ways. We want something new, something that will tickle our ears. Don't talk about the imminent return of the Lord. Young people don't want to hear that. Don't teach through the Old Testament. You, you turn people away. That's what we're hearing. 
Now, I'm not saying we need to live in the past and sing only 1970 Maranatha praise songs. But maybe some of the Christian artists today should start writing songs that have more to do with worshiping Jesus than focusing on ourselves. And pastors need to get back to preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God rather than the philosophy of men. Lord says, walk in my ways and you'll find rest for your souls. But the Jews at the time, they said, we're not going to, we don't want to walk in it. We found a new path, a better road to travel than the the one God commanded them to travel. But see, they forget where the new paths lead. They don't want to think about what's at the end of the road of the old, you know, of the new path. The, the Babylonians coming invasion, they'd rather focus on the here and the now. Eat, drink, and be merry. You know, let's let the good times roll. We will not walk in it. We don't want any of that religious stuff. Let's we know one thing for sure, uh, uh, and that is God has not changed and neither is His Word. And we know the horror that, those, that awaits those who go down the wrong path. These Jews, they were determined to break with tradition, even if their tradition was right. And it's been said, you know, never remove a fence until you know why it was put up in the first place. But, but the Jews in Jerusalem, they didn't care. I mean, they're pulling up fence posts left and right. They didn't care. Verse 17. Also, I said, a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. We'll see in a little bit that, that the Jews thought they were immune from God's judgment because of the sacrifices they offered him. But you see, the sacrifices were just a hollow ritual. God wants devotion. God wants obedience, not just sacrifice. Verse 21. Therefore says the Lord, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. Now here's where God describes the coming invasion by the Babylonians. Verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people come from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. And they ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. Babylonians had a fierce reputation. They impelled those that they conquered. They skinned them alive. They even plucked their eyes out. Uh, Think of Daniel's friends. Remember, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Jeremiah is telling us God's people, this army from the north, they play rough. Judah needs to take heed. Verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as far as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation for the plunderer will suddenly come upon us. He's saying, that, repent. Humble yourselves. Destruction is coming. Verse 27. I've set you as an Asayer and a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanderers. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. Their bellows blow fiercely. They lead us and consumed by the fire. Their lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. 
See, Jeremiah here is referring to that refining process that, you know, we've talked about this. The metal is heated to this extreme temperature, causing the impurities to rise to the surface and then skimmed off and it makes the metal pure. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard that uh, analogy before. But, but God does this in us. He puts us through the fire to burn away those, those impurities and hypocrisies in our life so, so we end up, up pure. But this normal process, the Lord says, is not working during Jeremiah's day. He's saying the smelters refined in vain and the wicked are not drawn off. Even though God has turned up the heat and it's getting hotter and hotter, the rebellion of the people was so deeply entrenched, it was like, like it wasn't skimmable. It was too polluted. The hottest trial was not going to separate the people from their evil. As verse 30 says, people will call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. What a sad outcome. See, notice what God can't purify he ends up rejecting. You know, we're kind of told the same thing in John fifteen six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and is withered. See, you can't say you belong to God if you're not abiding in Him. If you're not seeking to draw close to Him and allow Him to work in your life. Okay, chapter 7. Let me give you a little bit of background before we get to verse 1. Remember King Josiah was reigning at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. We know that in, the, that in the 18th year of his reign, he ordered the temple restored. The temple had fallen into disrepair on top of the fact that they had built altars under Baal and Molech and, and the outer courts. And for years, they had forsaken the worship of God in the temple. So Josiah ordered the temple to be restored and he gave to Hilkiah, the high priest, the finances to hire the carpenters and the different trades that they might come in and just refurbish the whole place. Now, while they're cleaning out all the debris, they found a scroll of the law. And as they began to read the scroll of the law to King Josiah, he began to weep and sorrow as he saw how far they'd gone and they're turning away from God and how God and the law had promised his judgment would come on them if they forsook him and forsook the law. So Josiah, King Josiah, cries out, you know, deeply convicted for the evil of the people. And the word of the Lord came to Josiah through this prophetess named Holga. No, not Holga. Holda. She wasn't Russian. Uh, and, and so Holder sent a message to the king and said, because of this attitude of repentance and turning to God that the evil that God was doing to bring upon the people, the judgment would not come during his reign, but after his reign. Because of Josiah's heart to get back to what it was, and then the Lord said, okay, Josiah, during your reign, judgment's not going to come. Josiah was the last of the good kings, but after his death, man, it was all downhill from there. But as they read uh, to Josiah the book of the law, he saw how the Lord had ordered that the people were to gather together each year, how they were to celebrate Passover there in Jerusalem. So he ordered that, that a great celebration of the Passover in the 18th year of his reign as king. And the people, I mean, they were invited all over to, to come. And according to Second Kings, this is one of the biggest Passover celebrations in the history of the nation as far as the number of the people attending and, and the sacrifices that were offered. So there's this huge political and religious movement as, as a rather popular religious movement as the people could see that their king wanted to serve Jehovah. It was popular to go to church and to go to the temple. Oh yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's go here. And, you know, it's a dangerous thing just to go along with the crowd rather than coming just out of the desire of your own heart and, and to, to know God and to worship God. So with that as a background, we come to verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter into these gates to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a, between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless and the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave you to your fathers forever and ever. So one of the reforms that King Josiah did was to cut down the pagan altars surrounding Jerusalem and to, to centralize the worship of God in Jerusalem's temple. And he made this wonderful advancement, you know, and, and, and impressive renovations to the temple. He required everyone to worship there. But the people were so used to worshiping idols that they then quickly made an idol out of the temple. They viewed the temple as a, as a good luck charm. You know, it was God's temple. He, he would never allow damage to his temple. And it gave them this false security. They thought that since God, you know, uh, since the temple was the only God-appointed place to worship him, and since God wanted to be worshipped, he, he'd never allow any harm to come to the temple. So, so they're thinking they're immune from judgment. Here the Lord says, do not lie in these lying words saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. It's amazing to me how people replace God with the, with the things of God. That they'll exalt a, a symbol over, over the, the substance. You know, the, they'll wear a cross around their neck without any understanding of what that cross symbolizes. In fact, there's a, a story about a woman who went to a jewelry store in Denver to buy a necklace with a gold cross. And she said, I'd like a gold cross, please. And the man behind the counter said, do you want a plain one or do you want one with a little man on it? Can you imagine even saying that? I mean, this guy was so out of touch with, with the meaning of the cross and, and the sacrifice that all he knew was there's two types, a plain one and one with a little man on it. But people wear crosses like, like, like good luck charm. I got my good luck charm. I got my cross, you know. And, uh, you know, you see baseball players, oh, they'll get the cross and then they get ready to, to, to bat. It's like, well, is your look, good luck charm, you know? That's why they look at the cross rather than trust the man who died there to take away your sins. Now they rub it and kiss it and wear it as a good luck charm. They've turned the symbol into an idol. Hebrews did it with a brass serpent, you know. It was made as an instrument. It was it was made as an instrument of God's healing. But Second Kings eighteen four, the Jews turned it into an idol and they worshipped it. And now they're doing the same thing with the temple. And God is saying once again, amend your ways, do what is right, and I'll bless you. But the Lord says you just keep on refusing. Look at verse eight. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? It's like the, the guy that, that, you know, you know, raised ruckus all for six days of the week, then comes to church on Sunday morning and think, well, his attendance in church is going to make, you know, everything up okay. You know, it's going to make up for all the re rebellion. You know, growing up Roman Catholic, that's what it was like. For, you know, you, you can party and do whatever you want all week long, but then if you went to Mass on Sunday morning, it was good. Here, here the Jews are saying since they were God's people, since they worshipped in the temple, they could do as they like, still commit adultery, live however they want, and they'd be immune from His judgment. Their logic was ridiculous. Jeremiah says, don't you think that the Lord chose you and delivered you so you can just, you think that the Lord chose you and delivered you so you can just keep going on in these abominations? 
I mean, it really does sound like, like the Christians say, I'm saved now, it doesn't matter what I do, once saved, always saved, I, I've got the liberty. Paul talks about that in Romans 6.1, doesn't he? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so grace may bow? God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? God saves us so we, we won't sin. Not, not so we can keep at it. I mean, if you're truly born again, you have that relationship with the Lord, you're going to want to please Him. You're going to want to do, you're not going to want to do anything that would, dis, that would displease Him. Bring, bring no thought into our, our minds. So here the Lord goes on in verse 11. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Remember in Luke 19, verse 46, when Jesus drove out the money changers? Uh, from the temple. He quoted verse, verse 11 here. But then he added Isaiah 56 verse 7 with it. He said, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. If you ever, something interesting to look at. If you look at the similarities between Jesus and Jeremiah. Jesus, uh, uh, like Jeremiah, wept over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus also prophesied of Jerusalem's invasion and the destruction of the temple. Both ministered prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Both were a priest and a prophet. Both were accused of treason. Both never married. Both addressed the corrupt temple practices. Both spoke of the destruction of the temple. Both wept over Jerusalem's sin. Both loved Israel deeply. Both were forsaken by relatives and friends. Both were rejected in their own hometown. Both were tried, persecuted, and imprisoned. Both were condemned by the priests of their day. Both died at the hands of their own people. I find it interesting when you, when you look at Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi in a little, little retreat, he asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And you know, the, the disciples, you know, they, they had their, oh, well, the poll has been taken, the public opinion is this, and, and they said, well, some say you're, you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they must have seen, known that there's this resemblance between Jesus and Jeremiah for the people to think so. Jesus and Jeremiah both had that rare combination of toughness, toughness and tenderness. They were strong enough to confront the establishment of their day, yet sensitive enough to, to God and to the people to shed a tear. In fact, many rabbis of the Jewish, Jewish rabbis have tried to say that Isaiah 53, the, the prophecy of, of, of God's suffering servant speaks of Jeremiah. They've called him a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Of course, many reasons why we reject that, that notion. But Isaiah 53 only speaks of Jesus. But the ministries of both men are very similar in many ways. It's a little wonder that folks saw Jeremiah and Jesus. And, and, and as we continue here, the Lord says, Listen, look what happened in Shiloh and the judgment that came to them. Unless you change, don't think that you can escape the same judgment. Look at verse 12. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh, where I sent my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, and which you trust, and to this place which I gave you to, to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Now, Shiloh today is in the West Bank, 18 miles north of, of Jerusalem. But it's, a, it's an important biblical site. The tabernacle was in Shiloh for 350 years, almost as long as the temple stood in Jerusalem. 
In the days of Judges, Shiloh was to Israel what Jerusalem became after the temple was, was built. People pilgrimaged to Shiloh to worship at the tabernacle. Yet they made the same mistake in Shiloh that they would later make in Jerusalem. See, the Spirit of God rested uh, over the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a symbol of God's presence. Yet again, the people were trusting more in the symbol than the Spirit. And when Israel went into the battle, if you recall, against the Philistines, they sent out the Ark instead to, to take the lead, thinking that, oh, we're, we're going to be invincible. We got the Ark. And then the Ark was captured. And the high priest Eli, you know the story, he fell off his stool, broke his neck, and died instantly. 1050 B.C., Shiloh was then destroyed and Israel was defeated. Here's Jeremiah's point. The ark did not protect Shiloh from God's judgment and neither will the temple save them in Jerusalem. Holy things don't make a people holy. Holiness comes from a humble, broken heart. Again, you could wear a cross around your neck. You can have a little Jesus statue on your, on your car, a Christian fish on your bumper sticker, wear, t- wear you know, Christian t-shirts. Christian hats, shop only at Hobby Lobby and eat only at Chick-fil-A. But none of that's going to do any good if you're trusting in symbols and not the Savior. I mean, they're they're trusting in, you know, these things, the temple to keep them safe and not the Lord. Therefore, the Lord says to Jeremiah, look at verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in, in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. See, this was appalling to God. You, you, you offend him by your actions, and then you assume he's going to just protect you. All of Jerusalem, they're worshiping these idols. They, they, they turned it into a family affair. Kids would gather the wood, bring it in. The dads would make the fire and then the moms would make the sacrificial cakes. Their favorite idol, we read here that in Jerusalem at that time it was called the Queen of Heaven. Now she goes by different names. She was Ashtaroth to the Canaanites, Venus to the Romans, Aphrodite to the Greeks, Diana to the Ephesians, Isis to the Egyptians, Ishtar to the Babylonians. All the way down today where she's married to the Roman Catholics. Exalting Mary far beyond what God intended. Nothing more than just idolatry. So the Lord says, don't pray for them. Now, I do believe there are times when we do not need to pray certain prayers for people. Now, we shouldn't be praying for someone to be blessed if if they're living in outright rebellion against God. Pray for their salvation, yes, but but, but not for them to be blessed. Pray Pray that they're miserable until they get saved. There's a story that J. Vernon McGee tells of a time he visited a member of his church in the hospital and prayed for him. Then a man in the other bed asked him to pray for him as well. So J. Vernon asked the guy if he was a Christian and he said he believed, he believed in God. Well, McGee obviously told him well, that doesn't make him a Christian and then explained the gospel to him and asked him if he, he wanted to put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The man said, well, I can't accept that. But he still wanted him to pray for him anyway. This is what McGee said. He said, Brother, I will pray for you, but not the way you want me to pray for you. You want me to pray that you will get well and that God will bless you? I'm going to pray that you get saved. That is the only prayer I can pray for you. And I agree with Pastor McGee. Here the Lord says, Therefore do not pray for this people. Verse 19, he says, Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, 
on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will be burned and not be quenched. So judgment is going to be severe. Verse 21, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat meat. In other words, since you're being so hypocritical when you're offering your sacrifices to me, you might as well just eat them yourself. You know, it's like saying, you know, it's like if you're singing songs of praise to me, all the while you're thinking about where you're going to go to lunch, what you watch on TV later on, and, and, and you're not really communing with me. You're not really spending time with me. You know, if your praise is not heartfelt, then it certainly doesn't please God. You're just kind of going through the motions. Verse 22, For I did not speak to your fathers, or command them in that the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I'll be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. See, the means by which God saved Israel from Egypt was the Passover. It involved a sacrifice, killing the lamb, spreading its blood on, on the doorpost. But that sacrifice really was a statement of obedience. And trust in God, uh, without the sacrifice, it would have been meaningless. But what mattered to God was their faith. If they did this, they would be saved. God, you know, never took pleasure just in the barbecue aroma. Oh, yeah, that smells really, really good. Now, we do. You know, you go by price cutter and they're, they're doing that barbecue. Oh, that smells really, really good. Because we're hungry. But God's like going, oh, you know, he looks at our hearts. Sacrifice and burnt offerings were always intended to be expressions of the heart and trust and commitment to Christ. We looked at this last night in our men's study, Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And some people say, well, well, I, I don't feel like praising the Lord tonight because I'm tired or uh, I've got so much to do. Listen, the best time to praise the Lord is, is when you feel that way. Because then it's a sacrifice of praise. As you worship the Lord in spite of your own fleshly feelings and what, what you want or don't want to do. I have found personally in, in, in the darkest times, you know, they turn into the sunniest times as you just praise the Lord. You know, you, you're frustrated, you're in the car, and you, and you, you know, you probably you this and that, and, and turn on some praise music and everything just changes. Oh, praise the Lord. So here the Lord says here in verse 23, Obey my voice, and I'll be your God. You shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Now, whenever Leviticus 6-8 is read, the laws concerning burnt offerings, they're accompanied with this passage from Jeremiah 20, verse 23. It keeps, keeps the law of the sacrifices in the proper context of obedience and faith and trust in God. That was how Israel started their journey. They were to obey God's voice, be His people, walk in His ways. And yet, look at verse 24. They did not obey or incline their ear, but follow the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts and went backwards and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I've even sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. See, God had not left them. From the beginning, it sent messengers and servants to warn them and, and challenge them and to commit their life to God. But, verse 26, they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Verse 27, as a result, Jeremiah is told, Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. George Orwell once said, The further society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. How would you like to be called to Jeremiah's ministry? 
Speak all the words to them, but they're not going to obey you. You shall also call to them, but they're not going to answer you. I've had dreams. This is, this is a confession. I have dreams. I'm teaching from the pulpit, and I'm sharing the word of God, and no one is paying any attention. You guys, they're kind of talking, and, and they've got something going on over here, and, and I'm talking, and it's just, just no one's listening. And I'm going, this isn't right. This isn't right. And I wake up and realize I've got to get my study done. But anyway... God is saying, this is going to be your whole ministry. This is it. Your whole life. This is your ministry. It's a ministry that has a promise of failure. (laughs) And yet, because Jeremiah was faithful and obedient, God blessed Jeremiah as his instrument, even though there was to be no success coming from his ministry. Lord says, Jerry, you know, they're not going to listen to you. That's okay. You tell them anyway. Why? Because God wants His witness to be left so that men are without an excuse. Hey, you've heard it. You've heard the gospel. Now you are accountable for what you've heard. They've heard it, the good news. God requires us, wants us to go out and witness it. And we're not always going to be successful. But that doesn't make any difference to God. God's not going to reward me, you know, according to the number of people that responded to my witness. God will reward me for witnessing. Because the response is not up to me. It's not up to us. It's not our job. It's God's. Only God can create a response in the heart of the people. It's not up to me to argue people into a faith for believing in Jesus Christ. It's only up to me to witness to, to, to them of God and God's love and God's word and God's truth. It's up to them the, the, for the Spirit of God to take that witness and do with it what He wants in the heart of the individual. And quite often we don't really know the, the work of the Spirit in the heart of a person. It may be years down the road that you never see this guy again, but they, they come to Christ all because of something you said that they remembered, maybe even at their deathbed. So here Jeremiah is called to bear witness of God's judgment coming, even though the people would not listen. Or it goes on and says them in verse 28, So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Take up lamentation on the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of His wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. I mean, they had altars to Baal right there in the temple of God. They couldn't have committed a greater blasphemy. Verse 31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not commend, nor did it come into my heart. This was so horrible. This is the place where the screams and the cries of babies would be heard as they would place their, 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 their newborn son or daughter and offer them up to the, the false god of Moloch. The high places of Tophet was the site where the Jews offered child sacrifice to the Moabite god named Moloch. Tophet here means fireplace or incinerator. Now this Moloch had this, this head of an ox and, and, and the body of a human and, and it was made with brass with a hollow torso and, and his arms were outstretched like this and a fire was stoked inside the idol until the arms were red hot, just, just glowing. And they would place their children in the idol's arms while the priest of Moloch beat their drums down and the baby screaming so you wouldn't hear them screaming because they're beating the drums so loud. Isn't it little difference to what's happening in our country today? I've shared this the other day where Road versus Wade legalized abortion. Sixty million babies have been sacrificed to the gods of pleasure and convenience since then. Many of them have been literally burned inside by saline abortion. All the while, pro-choice groups are beating that drum. Oh, you know, they have a choice. They have a choice to drown out the voice of the unborn. 
God's not going to allow that to go on forever. Well, the same with the time of Jeremiah. Look now, verse 30, 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will be no more called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they were buried in Tophet until there was no room. The corpses of this people will be a flood for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. Just an ominous warning. The places that the citizens of Jerusalem have sacrificed their babies to Moloch, their corpses are going to be piled high, given to the, to the turkey vultures, the wild beasts. You know, they, you know, they're going to scavenge the place. They're not going to be able to shoo them away. Finally, verse 34. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. So in the wake of the Babylonian judgment, the city will be void of joy and happiness and celebration. There will be no weddings, only funerals. A wake will be held for all of Jerusalem. What a lovely place to end tonight. <laughs> Horrible. But you know what? I remember what Ben said on Sunday. Jesus puts the fun in funerals. Right? See, the good news is that, that we have a Savior. He's our Lord. He's our King. And, and the Bible says in First Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. We don't have to fear judgment. That only is going to come to those who reject Jesus Christ. We have such a great hope in Jesus Christ. Just pray for our country. Pray for those that don't know Christ. But understand... We have hope. We have the Lord. Follow His ways. Follow His Word. Do whatever it takes. If you've grown bored of God's Word, get into it. Read it. You'll see that it's alive and powerful. Let's pray. Lord God,